Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Ag Innovation News Podcast, presented by the Agricultural Utilization Research Institute of Minnesota. I'm Dan Scogan, your host for the Ag Innovation News Podcast. Now, guests on this podcast will shed light on innovations in value-added agriculture, highlight important voices and work that's being done throughout the Minnesota egg sector, and educate the public about resources and organizations that support Minnesota agriculture. Today, we'll be welcoming to the Egg Innovation News Podcast, Ryan Haug, a farmer up in Wilkin County who has embraced cover crops, and Kim Melton, a resource specialist with the Wilkin County Soil and Water Conservation District. These guests have been introduced to AURI through EMBOL, Now, building soil health and supporting water stewardship are critical as we tackle climate change and make our agricultural systems more resilient, and they are a major priority for Embold. Embold itself is a coalition of globally leading food and egg companies and innovators based right here in Minnesota, and we're working together to accelerate solutions to climate change and growing global demand for food. AURI is a founding member of that coalition. Embold works with farmers and ranchers to adopt soil health and water stewardship practices, build markets for alternative crops, and manage the risk that farmers face when exploring new approaches. In collaboration with General Mills, Cargill, and the McKnight Foundation, Embold is proud to support the important work that Wilkins Soil and Water Conservation District leaders like Kim and Ryan are doing to help farmers innovate in the Red River Valley. Ryan, let's start with you. A little background on yourself, your farming operation, and what's brought you here today. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Dan, for having me today. Definitely excited to be here and interested in in what this platform has to offer for for the folks out there. I'm a fourth-generation farmer, farm in southeastern Clay County and northeastern Wilkin County. My brother and I farm together. We've got a wife and, and two young daughters that are part of the operation as well, whenever they can be. And uh, we've been journeying down this soil health path, I guess you'd say, for the last seven or eight years. And we've had some uh, fun times and, and some struggles along the way as well. We're going to come back and dig a little deeper into some of that, Ryan, a little bit later on. But Kim, I want to hear a little bit about your role in Wilkin County and how you and Ryan got to know each other. Hi, Dan. Yeah, Kim Melton with the Wilkin Soil and Water. I've been here going on nine years now, and I, I love my job because I get to pick on farmers like Ryan and Michael Haug and work on soil health, and that is my primary duty here as the resource specialist in Wilkin is to find ways that I can assist farmers in adopting change and help them get over those struggles that they see in agriculture and the farming world that are kind of stopping them from trying new things. And so we're here as a, as a resource for these farmers, whether it be soil erosion, water erosion, or just simply changing farming practices like adding cover crops in their rotation. And so I look at us as kind of that um, support beam that just assists them with some cost share and, and some decreasing that risk and helping them implement change on their land. Kim, I expect to come back to you and dig a little deeper on the process and the procedure and how these soil and water conservation districts might be able to help others who are starting to think about going down this road. But Ryan, back to you. I would guess, listening to your introduction, that you were more of a traditional farmer, kind of put that in quotes, I suppose, and now have transitioned to cover crops, grazing, pasture pods, and more. Is the transition still occurring or how long have you been farming the new way and what drove you to that decision? I guess we started with the no-till and cover crops in 2015. Before that, we were very much conventional, what would be considered conventional farmers. 
corn soybeans, wheat, full tillage, chisel plow passes in the fall, field cultivator in the spring. When we switched to no-till, we sort of went all in. I'm the kind of guy that likes to push my brother off the end of the dock and then jump in right behind him. We definitely took a, a big leap into this thing, and at the end of the day, we feel it really, really paid off for us. So it's 18 years down the road. How does your farm look different today? We started in 2015, so we're about eight years down into this program now, and a lot of things have changed. We implemented the cover crops and the no-till. We immediately seen a whole new challenge of weed control that we didn't anticipate. But once we got through those first three years, our weed control became a lot easier. You know, we just had a different scope of weeds, I guess, more winter annual weeds than what you would see with a conventional tillage program. And once we figured out that, we've been able to manage it a whole lot easier. And then with the amount of residue that we're leaving on our soil surface now, weed control really isn't an issue at all anymore for us. And so with that also came, you know, with the residue that we're leaving our water infiltration has actually increased significantly as well. And so when we do get some of the heavier rain events, we feel very confident that we're capturing as much of that water as we can and not, not allowing it to run off of our farms and contaminate any, any surface water runoff in, in the ditches and that sort of thing. And Ryan, not knowing specifically where you're farming, are you in the Red River Valley? Do you typically flood in the spring? So we're right on the edge of the Red River Valley. We've got some, some ground that's considered the Lake Agassiz Beach Ridge, which is the old sandy beaches that were from the formation of Lake Agassiz about 6,000 years ago. So with that, there really isn't a lot of fully submersed ground, you know, flooded in the spring. We do have some topography to it. It's not a lot of elevation change on that on those farms in Wilkin County. I think there's about 14 feet of drop and a half a mile on some of that and some about six or eight feet. And it's also very sandy, and so it's very porous. It's sort of a mix of, of that sand and silt with fairly high organic matter, which sort of provides its own challenge with the water table issue. The water table is fairly high up in that part of the area, and with that sand, we actually were able to tile those fields with drain tile to help with the subsurface dewatering portion of things, which has really helped us out as far as being able to no-till as well and, and really as a whole system has provided a lot of help. Kim, back to you and the help that your office can offer. If a farmer listening to our podcast today is thinking about making this transition, there's going to be some expense and there's just going to be some desire to get good knowledge about how to proceed. What can your office or the other soil and water conservation districts around the state do to help farmers make this transition? That kind of takes me back to the first time I met Ryan and Michael Howe because they did come into this office and we are co-located with FSA, the Farm Service Agency, and then NRCS, Natural Resource Conservation Service. And so they come in naturally to sit down and do a conservation plan or see what the EQIP program through NRCS would offer them for cost share. And so that's when I first met them. And that's kind of where my training background comes from. Us soil and water districts often attend a lot of NRCS trainings and we learn about the conservation plan and how you can sit down with farmers and assess on a full farm basis. And so that's where my roots kind of started in this program. And as I sit down with farmers and I work with them, a lot of them say they need more flexibility than the federal programs can offer them. And so Hearing that, I went out and sought private funding. And so having these corporations like Embold, General Mills, and Cargett, 
they really put us on the leading edge of adopting soil health practices and change in the valley for farmers here. Not all soil and water districts are are created equal. They don't all have this, they have the same opportunities, but it takes a, a workforce to get things accomplished. And so being on the leading edge with our old manager, Don, we were at the forefront of finding financial incentives to offer farmers to be able to give them that flexibility. So the private funding is what really gave us that ability to offset the risk that a lot of these farmers incur with making that change. And then just being that resource, just being able to pick up that phone and say, yep, I'm here. Yeah, you know what? We need to change it from peas to rye, or we need to move it from oats and, and we need to add radishes, or now we now we need to get rid of broadleaves. And being able to answer that phone and be that resource and, and help them through that process of change, because like Ryan had mentioned earlier, you know, your first couple of years are a struggle. And weeds, you see weeds or, or something that you didn't think was going to be a problem before is now a problem. You know, you're not getting your field as early as you were when you did not incorporate spring cover crop. And so there's things that you can talk through and, and work and work through kind of like these podcasts. Hearing other farmers' stories or scenarios are going to help ease that burden. And that's where Ryan and Michael are, are just at the top of the game because they are so willing to share their story with others. And they've sat on multiple panels for me and are so willing to share that story. So Ryan, when I hear Kim explain how the Soil and Water Conservation District is willing to help, she talked about some unexpected expenses or some cost of making that transition. What might a farmer run into that they hadn't planned on? Well, there's different challenges with different practices. And so if you're looking at, say, a cover crop practice, maybe a, a no-till application to do that after a wheat or barley harvest. Well, if, if a farmer doesn't have a no-till drill, that becomes a challenge. And so with the county, we can look to rent a, a no-till drill from the county office, and then the cost share payments help to offset the cost of that renting of the drill. Let's say we're doing a cover crop application into standing corn, that's going to be in more of an aerial application. We've utilized the program then to help pay for that aerial application of the rye into our standing corn. And part of that is anytime that you fly on rye or any cover crop blend into standing corn, you're, you're very dependent on the rain because we need that rain to germinate the seed. We don't have the seed to soil contact that we do with a drill where we're actually putting it in a furrow. And so we've had very, very mixed results with an aerial broadcast application like that. We've had years where we caught a rain the very next day or that evening. I had a tremendous stand. We've had years where hardly anything grows at all. We had a year where nothing grew until the following spring because we didn't get any rain in the fall. And that was actually not this past fall, but the fall before was the case there. Now this year, we had a, an aerial application of rye into corn where we got some really nice rains afterwards. And that rye looked fantastic on the day we combined the corn. And so we're real excited to see that stand coming up in the spring. As far as straight up no-till practices, there's some equipment modifications that, that can be made or, or will need to be made to a corn planter. And so getting some of the payments to no-till can help be put towards that upgrading of the of equipment or even just the modification portion of equipment to make your existing planter work as a no-till planter. Ryan, I do want to circle back and talk about some of the changes that you had to make on your farm to move in this direction. But farmers are so independent. Still, we like to look over the line fence and see what our neighbors are doing. What's been the initial reaction from your uh, friends, family, and neighbors to this new way of farming Wilkin County? 
we were probably the laughing stock of the of the neighborhood for the first year. There was an awful lot of talk. You can't no-till that that type of ground. It's not going to work. It's just going to seal up on you. We heard every excuse why it wouldn't work, especially that first year. And now we don't hear anything about it anymore. And actually, with with the cover crops, a lot of our neighbors have asked questions about what what we're doing with the cover crops and how it's working for us. We've actually custom seeded some cover crops for some folks around here who have helped utilize some of these programs as well. And then as far as friends and family go, family immediately very, very supportive of it. A lot of my friends, I've got a lot of friends that are 40, 50 miles from us that actually do a lot of no-till already. And so that was a, a real easy sell and nice to have that support from those guys. Some of our friends locally, they had the same questions that everybody else had, how, how you think that's going to work. But now after seeing it, what we've been able to accomplish, nobody really questions what we're doing anymore. We're going to go back and talk about what you're seeing as far as improvement in the soil health and positive reactions from your cover crop farming. But I want to remind our listeners that we're visiting on the Ag Innovation News podcast with Ryan Haug, a farmer from Wilkin County who has embraced cover crops. And with us also is Kim Melton, a resource specialist with the Wilkin Soil and Water Conservation District. And we're talking about the transition that Ryan and his brother have made on their farm through some help from Emble, who works with farmers and ranchers to adopt soil health and water stewardship practices. Ryan, improvement in soil health, is it getting better and how do you know? It's absolutely getting better. You can see in the soil, if you take a shovel and stick in our soil now and turn it over, it doesn't look anything like it used to. We have soil aggregation now. My brother likes to say it looks like cottage cheese which is the best thing that you can tell for somebody that doesn't know what a healthy soil should look like, like a nice piece of chocolate cake where, you, where you've got that richness to it. It's a good color. You've got the porous areas in between there that are, that are providing space for water to infiltrate and oxygen down into the soil. And with that, you can't deny that it's, that it's not working. Our soils didn't look like that before. And I can walk across the fence line into the neighbor's take the shovel and, and flip over this essentially the same ground that's only 15 feet away and it doesn't look anything like that. It's very compacted, very plated, very little structure to it. And so the water infiltration on, on those soils is nowhere near what ours is on our farm, which on a dry year is a very, very valuable thing to be able to infiltrate any drops of moisture that we can get. So on an operational scale, have you seen a reduction in your input costs? Our fuel bill's gone down significantly. We make less trips over the fields. And then from a fertility standpoint, I can't give you an exact number on that because we've also switched everything to zone applications. So we now variable rate all of our N, P, and K by zone. We have five zones in all of our fields now. And so that was another change that we've made in this in this same timeline. And so it's hard for me to to give you an exact number. I wish I could say, oh yeah, we've reduced fertilizer by 20% cost, but I, I can't give you that number because of the practices that we've changed along the way as well. And both you and Kim mentioned equipment that may be needed. Did you have to do much updating of equipment or uh, equipment change out to make this transition? 
Our corn planter, we, we kept the same corn planter. We made some modifications to it, put some heavy-duty down pressure swings on it, and then having a good sharp openers is very key. And then one of the biggest things that really helped us with the no-till corn is just slowing down, reducing that tractor speed from five to four and a half miles per hour. That four and a half mile per hour mark, the whole planter just penetrates the soil so much better. And, and everything just runs so much smoother. That was probably the biggest thing on the on the corn planter. For the small grains, we were at the point where we needed a, an upgrade on our grain drills. And so we did purchase a, a John Deere single disc drill, which is a, an air seeder. And that's what we use now for our small grains, as well as some fertilizer applications and the cover crops. Are you harvesting the cover crops? Are you using them for grazing or are you putting them back in the soil? The majority of our acres get grazed. We do have some acres that do not have fence, or even if we do have fence, we have extra cover crops that we don't need to utilize as grazing. And so those those cover crops will get left on the soil surface, and then we will no-till the following spring's cash crop into that cover crop residue. All of the crops, the cover crops that we graze in the fall, we typically are, are utilizing to extend our fall grazing to try to fill that window between summer pasture and when we can get to corn stalks. And then how available is seed stock for somebody who may be thinking about this transition? Is it readily available? Cover crop seed is, is very much readily available. There's going to be year to year, maybe some specific species that are, are going to maybe be in limited supply. But with that, you can easily substitute many other species. A lot of times it's, it's maybe a specific variety that could easily be switched out for another variety. And then as far as a shortage of, of seed, there, there certainly isn't at the moment. Kim, I've mentioned Embold a couple of times today. Tell me a little bit about Embold's role in this project and how significant was that for the Wilkin Soil and Water Conservation District and the Hogs? Yes, a huge thank you to Embold, along with General Mills and Cargill. When we started our cover crop program, we just had a small amount of money from the watersheds and our, our county commissioners, and we were able to just put together a small one-year cover crop trial program for these farmers that maxed out at 50 acres. We covered 700 acres the first year. We were excited to cover 700, but again, going back to those funding sources, we knew we weren't going to be able to provide much more support than that to these farmers. So reaching out to Cargill and General Mills and Embold, it completely changed our incentive or, or our ability to incentivize programs to farmers. With this funding from the private sector, we were able to cover 7,500 acres of cover crops last year. And we anticipate continuing to grow with our new RCPP money coming down the line. So we are anticipating even bigger numbers. So to go from 700 in year one to 7,500 in year three, being able to incentivize up to 160 acres for three-year commitment gives these farmers the ability to keep trying it year after year on different rotations and seeing how cover cropping and how these practices fit in their farming operation. Kim, I have to ask you, because you've walked with the hogs hand in hand on this whole project, what advice would you have for someone else who's thinking about this transition to cover crops? I have been asked this question recently, Dan, and here's the answer that I gave them. Find a resource or, or find a farmer that you're comfortable talking to that is already doing it, and I can gladly share a list of names. We've got some incredible farmers 
in this area that are willing to share their story. So you have someone to go to for that advice. And then second, I tell them, you know, let's start small and pick a field that you're comfortable with that is not the worst for thickest clay gumbo or sands, but find something that is forgiving for you so that if you don't like how it looks, you can go back to farming as as you were before, because I think that's the scary part is, you know, these guys do what their dad's dad did and they're going to continue to do that. And so that change is a scary thought. And so finding a a comfort spot in, in reducing the risk and maybe knowing like, Hey, this might work, I think has really increased the awareness of cover crop in Wilkin County alone. And that's why we're having so much success with broadening our programs and getting more acres covered. Ryan, what could you add to that as far as advice for someone who's thinking about going down this road? Well, I think Kim's absolutely right in the fact that you've got to talk to somebody and maybe that's not your neighbor. Maybe that resource needs to be a little further away from home because the thing about change is when you look at what you've done for years and years and you look the way your dad did things, your dad changed a lot of things in his lifetime. Your dad did not farm the same way he did when he first started out, and neither will you, and neither will I. And so to implement change is simply a necessity of keeping up with the times. And I think as technology increases and and more and more information becomes available to producers, we need to utilize that information and really look at it as what, what could work on my operation, and then not be afraid to try something Try it in the back, 40 acres of of a quarter section where nobody else can really see it. And if it fails, don't be afraid to talk about it and use that as a learning experience. So many times we'll have one failure in life and just say, oh, that doesn't work that way. So I'm never going to try that again. Instead of utilizing that as a learning opportunity, we just sort of push it off to the side and say, no, never going to try that again. And I think if we were a little more open to talking to folks that are maybe 30 miles away or 50 miles away or 100 miles away and learning from them and and say, there's got to be something that could work on my operation and then trying it. It makes me want to ask you if there are more changes coming on the hog farm. Did you and Mike talk about the future and what it might look like 10 years from now or other changes you'd like to make? We do try to keep a three-year outlook. Beyond three years, it seems like things change too much. We used to try to have a five-year plan. I think I'm still saying in five years, five years, we'll get there someday, right? We do have some things that that we are looking at implementing over the next couple of years, but there's sort of a top secret mission that we're going to figure out if it's going to work for us or not before we release any of that intel. Kim, where can people go just for general information or to get more information on what's possible on their farm? Is there a good resource? There is. Every county has an SWCD with uh, NRCS staff, and these people are well-trained, and they're going to know which way to go for conservation, and there is always funding available. So I highly recommend reaching out to your counties, whether you're in Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota, Wisconsin, Iowa, we all have these conservation districts, and it's a good resource for anybody that's looking for a little bit of incentive to change some practices. Ryan, what would you like to leave us with today? I think we just need to take away from from all of this stuff that it's okay to try something that's new. 
something that maybe scares you a little bit and you might find out that it really works well for you. And I think if we went through life with that attitude, a lot of things, a lot of really good things could be accomplished. And so utilizing those resources, whether it be, you know, just stopping in to the NRCS and SWCD offices in your county and talking to some of those professionals, like Kim said, they've got a list of guys that are willing to talk, willing to share their experiences. And so that would be the, a real easy starting point. And I think people should definitely think about utilizing that. Kim, anything to add to that? Yeah, if I was going to give my last words of wisdom, that's kind of the avenue I was going to go down is, you know, don't be scared of change. If you have an idea or, or you're even thinking about wanting to try something, start checking some resources, find that person, see what it would look like. Maybe start small. You don't need to do full field trials. You can just give it a shot and and try it on that field in the backyard that nobody sees. So you're a little more comfortable with it before you you do it in a spot right off major highway. And, And don't give up if it doesn't work on the first try. I think that's the other thing is, you know, so many times Mother Nature can can kick our butt and we just mark that down as a fail. But if you look at it and learn from it, try try and try again, I guess, and, and eventually you'll you'll see the silver lining. Kim and Ryan, thanks so much for your time today and for participating in our podcast. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Dan. Thank you, Dan. We've been visiting with Ryan Haug, a farmer out of Wilkin County who has embraced cover crops, and Kim Melton, a resource specialist with the Wilkin Soil and Water Conservation District. I want to thank them and thank you for joining us today. Thanks for listening to the Ag Innovation News Podcast, presented by the Agricultural Utilization Research Institute of Minnesota. And I want to thank my podcast crew, Lisa Martinez, AURI Communications Coordinator and the editor of this production. To learn more about AURI, visit auri.org.